0: We acknowledge the traditional landowners of this country. We pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging. We would particularly like to acknowledge the traditional landowners of the land on which we stand. I am on Wiradjuri land. Tam stands on the land of the Dharawal people and Laurie on the land of the Turrawal people. We express our great gratitude in sharing this land with you. Remember our disclaimer, materials and content in this podcast are intended as general information
1: only and should not be substituted for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Welcome everyone to the Pelvic Health Podcast. Today's episode discusses the deeply sensitive topic of stillbirth. We understand that discussing this subject can be distressing or triggering for those who've experienced loss or are currently dealing with pregnancy complications. In this episode, the beautiful Heidi Mules will be sharing her personal story about her daughter, Sophie. She'll talk about how clinicians can identify and discuss risk factors for stillbirth, and how we can help in the psychological and physical healing of mothers. We want to ensure that our listeners prioritize their mental and emotional well-being. If you believe this content may be too difficult for you to listen to at this time, we encourage you to consider skipping this episode. For those of you who continue to listen, please be aware that we do our best to handle this sensitive topic with the utmost care and sensitivity. If at any point during this episode you find yourself struggling emotionally, please remember it's okay to pause or stop listening and reach out to someone you trust for support. Thank you for joining us on this important journey of understanding and healing. We hope this episode can provide valuable insight and support for those who need it. The resources that we discuss will be provided in the show notes.
0: I was saying to Laurie when she first mentioned um, we have had an opportunity to talk to you that we see lots of patients in our clinic who've had stillborn babies and because they get referred from their counsellor directly to us because she identified that they, (laughs) you know, they go through this ordeal, but they still have been through pregnancy and birth and yet Aren't physically looked after um,
1: yeah,
2: post. Yeah.
0: So we've sort of been on this sort of steep learning curve, just more around communication. And so I just was like, oh, any opportunity to learn more around how better to communicate with women, how better to treat them
1: post a stillborn baby, I am up for. So yeah. thank you. Yeah, awesome. I'm yeah. so thankful for you coming to um, talk to us today. So can we start by look. Um I won't even get you to get into your um, professional background, but you are a physiotherapist um and now you are an occupational specialist occupational with- health
2: it's it's a it's a tag um I guess but yeah so I'm working more in occupational health
1: now mm-hmm. yep yeah. um but if you can tell us about your story and Sophie's story
2: yeah so um I was living in the UK when we had our first daughter, Emily, and um that was um, a, an interesting experience in itself, but ultimately it was a low-risk pregnancy, bit of a traumatic birth, but everything was was fine. And then um, we wanted to have another child. So we fell, well, we were very lucky to fall pregnant very easily both times. When we found out we were pregnant with Sophie, we made the conscious decision that we were going to come back to Australia for the birth. Because it was it was hard having a, a child overseas without family. Laurie, you would understand that. Um, and we didn't have any family over in the UK. So we decided to come back to Australia when I was about 34 weeks pregnant. From early on in the pregnancy, we teed up obstetric care for when we got back to Australia. Both Emily and Sophie were under the NHS banner um, when we were in the UK. And we were considered low risk. I was 30, I want to say 37 at the time when I um, fell pregnant with Sophie. And I'm um, as a health professional, I was very aware of um, um, lots of risks or so I thought. And in my mind, my only real risk was getting falling pregnant, right? So once you're over 35, you're considered a geriatric mother. And, and I, I fell pregnant with all of my babies just like that, or almost just like that. So once we fell pregnant, for me, it was like, sweet, home and host, um, there's, there's no problem. And there was, no one ever discussed any other potential risks that we might have at any stage during our care in the NHS. And then when we flew back to Australia, we, were, we had a private obstetrician who we saw the day after we got back. There was just never any discussion about risks at all, full stop. I was considered and I was told I was a low-risk pregnancy. So I was about 34 weeks pregnant, um, and I was by the time I got back to Australia, I was pretty regularly seeing the obstetrician. I think yeah, it got to fortnightly very quickly and then weekly. And as we were about a month out of my due date, um, we had the discussion around. Planning an induction, so you need to plan an induction because in Australia they don't let you go over, I think, ten days. And the obstetrician said to us, "We just need to set a date. Um, you might go earlier than this, but the dates that I'm working that you can have are your due date, which was the first of December, or one week later, which is the eighth of December." So for me, as a physio, um, and I, I'd worked in um, in the mother mothers unit in Brisbane before. I knew that, I mean, everybody knows it's better to let the, the birth be um, be triggered by the baby. Like, you know, a natural birth is, is the best way. And, you know, I, I say this tongue-in-cheek now, but everybody knows that's the better option, right? So when she offered those dates to us, um, my husband and I, my husband went off my lead because he's not a health professional and we decided, let's well, let's book the induction for one week after my due date. And I had a planned um, review two days before I was due to be induced. Um, I went in and saw the obstetrician. She did an ultrasound. Everything was great. And she said I was already two centimetres dilated. So although I was asymptomatic at that time, she said, look, you probably won't even go two days. You'll, I'll probably see you tomorrow. And The next morning I woke up um, and I had sort of some weird signs. So hindsight's a great thing. I I remember always being told, and it was almost just said at the end of my obstetrician appointments, it was said, and if you get any sharp back pain or, um," and there were a few other symptoms, bleeding, um, you know, call straight away. So in the back of my mind, I I just assumed that meant, well, bleeding I knew was potentially bad Mm -hmm. and um, And that sort of sharp back pain, in my mind, that was because um, the reason they told me that is in case the baby was posterior. And so Mm -hmm. it could mean a lengthy um, birth process, um, et cetera, et cetera. And so that's what I thought they meant. And I now know that that was most likely in reference to a placental abruption or something going going on. Now, having said that, um, when I woke up the day I was in labor, I just had this weird cramping feeling around my whole trunk. It wasn't really painful. And I'd been through labor and a vaginal birth before, and it was a 36 hour labor. So I, I was very familiar with um, those pains. Um, so was that it a
1: similar like, sensation?
2: It was, it was no, it was, it was slightly different, but it wasn't alarming. Mm-hmm. So hmm. it was like this tight cramping, almost like a period type pain. It was a bit weird, but it, the thing about it was it was not regular. And so I hmm. rang the hospital in the morning and said, "I've, you know, I've got these, you know, three to four out of ten pains that they're, they're not really that regular. That might be going, might be ten minutes in between, but then there might be one minute in between, and then there's and it was a bit weird. So I rang the hospital a few times that morning because it was just a bit weird. And they ended up saying to me, "Hey, look, just come in and we'll check you out." So we went into hospital um, expecting that we'd be told early labour, go home and come back when, when the contractions are closer together. And when we got to hospital, um, we were put into the assessment room and um, the midwife came round with the Doppler um, to listen for the baby's heart rate and they couldn't find it. But I, I wasn't really overly concerned because they found my heart rate and in my mind I didn't really put together the fact that my heart rate is different to the babies and so she was sort of looking and looking a bit concerned and and I I really distinctly remember the feeling of and the way I describe it is have you ever lost something or you're going through your handbag trying to find your wallet or your keys and you, you they should be there and you have that moment of panic and you mm. and then and then the, the, the feeling eases because you find the, the, the bag. So I had that sort of feeling of, oh something's wrong, something's wrong, but it's going to be okay. And so she went and got the obstetrician who came back with an ultrasound and did an ultrasound of my of my stomach where they went over the heart and you could clearly see that her heart was not beating. And you know the, so she said to me, I'm sorry. And it was, it was very obvious um, to me. um, And and that's all she needed to say. I'm sorry. So that's how we found out that, that Sophie had died um, sometime between the day before and and that moment. The question that everybody has and finds it amazing is, Mm -hmm. do you have to give birth after that? Mm -hmm. And um, it, you know, I, I laugh now, but I don't actually know how people think the baby's gonna get out, right? Obviously C-section, but um but I'm my babies have all been born vaginally and I'm pro that you know, that's my choice. Um and the fact is a C-section is a high risk surgery for the mother. So it makes no sense. So, so yes, you do have to give birth normally when you have um, a stillborn baby. So about a few hours later, Sophie was born. So we um, went straight to the to the labor room, and um and and the birth was um so I've had four children. Um, mm-hmm. Sophie's birth was the most peaceful. Um, sadly because there's no crying at the end. Um, but yeah, it was. Uh, yeah it was it was the most peaceful and probably the the easiest but also the hardest birth out of out of all my kids
1: so this is the hard point where you go what do you say yeah as soon as someone tells you the story like there's no words to comfort and not having been through it and even like the part where you say you your choice is vaginal delivery you can have c-section I think that's where automatically people think from a psychological point of view isn't it less traumatic if you just have a cesarean section or you can be put to sleep and not then have to think about it yeah. um was there a choice like did they offer you a choice or they, they didn't but my
2: birth plan was always um uh vaginal delivery anyway um I don't think they do. I, I actually don't mm. know this.
1: Um, it's not I have them. asked. I've asked yeah. um, obstetricians and they do usually say we we advise them to have a vaginal delivery because it actually helps with the psychological healing process. Absolutely, absolutely. Mm.
2: Yeah, I think mm. um, to be I can't imagine sort of being put to sleep and then waking up, it would be like waking yeah. up to your worst nightmare. And yeah. that's um, I guess that's the feeling that my husband and I or certainly I had in the birthing suite after Sophie was born, this is just a bad dream. I'm going to wake up. Mm. You know, it, it it just was very, very surreal. Um, and it all happened very, very fast from finding out to when she was born was very fast. And, I mean, in that time, you know, my husband asked for a, a second opinion. Um, so when I was before the delivery, we asked for a second opinion and the obstetrician when we're in the delivery room came and did another ultrasound and um and you know she knew that this was really just for us and so yeah we we had a a, um, another ultrasound and we didn't know if she was a boy or a girl at that stage Mm -hmm. um so when she was born um it was the same sort of emotion of when you're having a baby and you don't know the sex so we were, were wanted to find out the sex straight away and we did skin to skin straight away and it was all the same as my other births but mm-hmm. um, but different, obviously, yeah, yeah. Um, What's
1: that next part in the hospital like? We were really, really lucky. So we
2: gave birth at the Marta Hospital in Brisbane. The Marta Hospital is, I don't know this for a fact, but I, it's very close to being one of the leading um, hospitals for stillbirth in the country and so we had amazing care we had amazing aftercare i couldn't fault um it we we delivered in um uh the delivery suite and then sophie stayed with us the whole time i was cleaned up and um and sophie we bathed her in the delivery suite and then we went up to the the ward and sophie was with us the whole time for me it was sort of i was expecting do they have to come and take her away from me and it was I didn't know what to expect, right? Mm -hmm. Um, um, There's a thing called a cold cot available and it's um, for those listeners who don't know, it's it's literally um, a cot which has got freezing water going through it and it preserves the body because some families might choose to stay in hospital for a prolonged period of time after Mm -hmm. the baby's born and obviously um, to have the baby with you the whole time they need to Mm -hmm. preserve the baby. Our choice was um, we had Amelie at home, our Hmm. older daughter, and she was only 15 months. So our choice was that we went home um, about 24 hours after Sophie was born. They put us in a ward at the hospital where there were no other babies. It wasn't in the maternity hospital, but it might have been the prenatal ward. I don't know. But I just they put us in a back corner to shield us from noises, and so that was amazing. I was offered counselling and I I did end up having counselling through the Martyr Hospital, so bereavement counselling for for 12 to 18 months um, after she was born. And the staff were were, were really great. They they were incredible. But it, it really saddens me because I know that even today, which is, you know, it's coming up to 12 years since Sophie was born, even today there are hospitals in the country where people are not, um, given the same care that that I was given. And I think that's a, a huge change that needs to happen in healthcare is that we we need to do better. Um and we need to do better consistently across the board, not just at the good hospitals, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Was the support government funded? Did you have yeah, to Yeah, I didn't have to I I don't know who paid for it. Um, it was yeah, all okay. yeah. Was <laughs> you didn't have to good. think about it. No, I, it was all yep. through
2: Queensland Health. I think I vaguely remember being told that I'd have up to, you know, 12 months of counselling, but I, I saw mm. Trish, um, my bereavement counsellor, for longer than 12 months and mm. I it was I didn't pay anything. So, mm. um.
0: What about your physical care, Heidi? As I mentioned earlier, it's sort of I'm not sure that every woman also gets looked after physically after birthing their stillborn baby. Yeah,
1: so
2: it's a, I mean education is I think hopefully improving but when you've had a baby the same things happen to your body postpartum as they do um if your baby's alive or not so my milk still came in and they they gave me a tablet I don't know what it was um but it was designed to suppress that and it you know let, let's just say that I for all of my children have been um, known as um, the milking cow by all my friends. I have a very good milk supply um, and if that tablet suppressed my milk supply, then it didn't completely stop it. So you still have the engorgement of your breast. You still you still bleed for six weeks mm-hmm. or so after you've had the baby. Um, you still yeah. have the, the post-birth cramping. You still have the hormone hormonal changes, um, but they're, obviously infinitely worse because you don't yeah. have a, a, a baby there um, with you at home. so um, So the care for me, um, so I saw my the obstetrician um I, I don't I don't have a strong memory actually. I don't have a strong mm. memory other than the unfairness of it it's still happening and and you still yeah. look like you've just had a baby and you're still yes I went to um, postpartum yoga so I did yoga when I was pregnant and and I, I went to yoga afterwards and the hard question was um the woman taking it when you first started sort of says all right so um you know how many baby oh how many babies have you had Oh, ha- have you got yes and um that was an easy question for me to answer because I knew that the context of that was important, that she knew that i just had a baby because that's yeah. how she'd modify the class. But it was also hard for me to, to, to say, well, two, but one. But I
0: mean, hopefully with your advocacy and, um, you know, just this raising of education and awareness around um, stillborn babies, I suppose what's your best advice for us as clinicians and how best to communicate? with mums that have had stillborn babies about you know just the language I know it's important to use the baby's name yeah and yeah. and this idea that you you've you've got two children you've had yeah. two births yeah um
2: what else can we do <laughs> yeah so I think um the the number one thing every I think everyone's different everyone is different okay so I can't speak for everyone but um Speaking for myself, I absolutely want Sophie to be acknowledged as one of my children. Um, and I'm so, um, Joe, I went on to have um, two more children after Sophie. So I've had four children. I find it very easy when people ask me how many kids I have. When you've got, you know, four kids, that people don't want it. They're like, oh, all right, uh, not mm. interested in um, too much. So that's quite easy. But my answer is always, um and i pick the wording but my answer when i'm asked how many children i have is i will say i have had four children mm. um and if it's appropriate um or if if i if i don't want to to divulge the story then my and they ask oh how old are they i'll say oh my youngest is eight my eldest is 13 and then there's and just sort of do that sometimes it's appropriate and and i'm happy to say you know give give the story and say that my second daughter was stillborn um it, it, it depends on the situation and the circumstances but but personally i always include sophie in my in my family um count if that's a, mm. the right term um i know that, that not all parents feel comfortable doing that though Mm. um it is it is definitely tricky because if you're at a family barbecue or if you're at a barbecue with people you don't know and you've got three young children there with you and they say oh how many kids have you got and you say four they're like Mm. it's it's all a bit weird so I always I do always say I've had four children yeah was it harder
1: to have those conversations Again, four months afterwards, six months yeah. afterwards when you'd only had one, like how do you, what did you say at that point? Like, again, if you're going to a class for Pilates, we're seeing a physio and yeah. those are the things that are important to modify or for your treatment. Yeah.
2: I was yeah. really open from the beginning, Laurie. You know me, I'm, mm-hmm. I am open book. Um, I started an exercise class, um, like a, a sort of boot camp strength class um. Uh, it would have been two months after she was born, I think. And um, I had to tell the the trainer that I've just had a baby because it was relevant. Yeah. But I, I would always take Emily, my toddler, with me, but I would never have the baby. So I just had to say to him up front, oh, look, I had a baby. I gave birth in January. Unfortunately, my baby passed away. But, you know, please Consider that when you're giving me the exercises. Um, so I think it's important in those circumstances that, that mm. we have to advocate for ourselves, but yes, um, not being afraid to just sit with that for a minute. Like in society, no one likes to talk about death, and um, and they think that it, you know, it's an awkward conversation, and it is an awkward conversation. But if if someone who's has lost a child has been um, open enough to um, include you in their story then i think having the respect to just sit with that for a moment you know the right answers would be the obvious i'm I'm so sorry to hear that um the next great answer is um what was your child's name you know it's as you've already mentioned do it is an important thing to say but i think um like saying it straight up, it 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 makes you pause on it. Makes the 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 person realize that their their, their baby was a, is a real person. They mm. they exist, and then it's an, an acknowledgement um of their existence. So I think just sort of pausing and and allowing the person to talk as much or as little as they want, and you'll get that you will get mm. that vibe from somebody if they don't want to talk about it. Um, And that's okay. Yeah. Um, the I was going to say the hardest thing for some mums though is if their firstborn is a stillborn. So Mm. I was very lucky because to society, even though um I had lost a child, I was still a mum because I had a toddler. Yep. It's it's a very, very hard um conversation for a mum who's lost their baby. Um, to for society to see them as a mother Um, and so I don't really know how to navigate that but I I can imagine that must be incredibly hard for somebody who um, has lost their only child yeah
0: yeah awful and then the fertility journey from that point on for them we've seen yeah is just grueling I mean fertility can be difficult for lots of people but I don't think any more difficult than someone who's lost their lost first their child? child yeah
2: yeah yeah so i mean so i said to you before that we felt pregnant really easily which we do um slash did um but for my third child which is my son so we started um we we wanted to start trying to have another child as soon as we were able to um after sophie was born so we had the discussion with the obstetrician and she sort of advised look at least wait she said to wait 3 months but i don't really think that was based on any any real facts um it was just to give your body a bit of time to heal i don't know we we started trying straight away and we um we struggled to conceive um our son uh to the point that after six months of trying, we um, saw the GP who sent us to a fertility specialist who said, um, would you consider IVF? Um, and because if you would, then let's do it sooner rather than later. So at that stage I was 39 and uh, I think I was 38 when Sophie was born. And so then I was 39 a few months after she was born and we made the decision that we would um we would have ivf if we struggled so we did we did 5 months of clomid and um and then on our last um month of that we actually conceived um max our son um he was he was conceived on sophie's due date one year later so that was That's beautiful um, yeah That's it was lovely signs. but you know then again my and then zara my fourth child she was um a surprise when after max was born we went to we, we had a, chose a different obstetrician and our um, next op- obstetrician at the six-week checkup after max was born said um have you are you done with your family in you know less blunt way than that and i and i just sort of paused because i didn't know i just didn't have that feeling that i was done but i didn't know that i definitely wanted more and she said look you're 40 years old you're Breastfeeding full time, you've got two children at home with you. The chances of you conceiving on multiple levels is is quite low. And on, on, on top of that, sorry, I meant to say when we were trying to fall pregnant with Max, I found out I was um, premenopausal. Zara was born three hundred and six, no, one year and three hundred and sixty days after Max was born. So yeah, but those two pregnancies were were, were much different. I'd lost the innocence of pregnancy. Um, as you can imagine, I was never relaxed for the for the mm, whole time. That's
1: gonna ask, yeah,
2: yeah. With my first two pregnancies, because I had previously worked in the neonatal unit as a physio in the neonatal unit, and I remember babies being in there. You know, if a baby was in the neonatal unit and they were thirty weeks old, they were um, considered. A geriatric baby, right? <laughs> What's mm. this big baby doing in here? So again, in my mind, for the first two pregnancies, if I reached um 30 weeks, then I'm home, I'm home and hosed, right? Yeah. The worst that can happen is the baby's born prematurely. And at 30 weeks, that's not premature. It just was never even entered my mind that stillbirth was a risk. I guess this is one of my messages that, yeah. that I'd love to talk about is why aren't we informing women of stillbirth as a risk so what are the risks so there are some obvious risks um smoking other comorbidities um diabetes you know different comorbidities Mm. health issues obesity uh firstborn babies are you're at a higher risk for stillbirth um indigenous population are at a higher risk Mm. of stillbirth and maternal age is a is a huge risk and so i had no no risk factors apart from my age obviously i couldn't control that but it was never told to me that my age was a risk for stillbirth Mm. and what about like
1: how long you carry is that a risk
2: yes um, the going post 40 weeks is Mm. a risk i don't know the stats on it but the bigger issue or the bigger conversation piece for me is let them know that that these are the risks, and that your risk is low, and then talking about ways that you can reduce that risk if you have a risk. Mm-hmm. So, in the case of smoking, you can reduce the risk by quitting. Um, in the case of if you've got a um, an obese, um, a bariatric potential mother, education before they even conceive around, you know, um, being overweight is not just a going to likely reduce your chances of conceiving because that's all people know about yeah um, but it's actually going to increase your risk of um of outcomes such as stillbirth so this is where education in the general um community at prenatal assessments with um with their clinicians can be discussed so that it's just something that's in people's vocabulary because at the moment stillbirth is not in people's vocabulary it's not something that's ever talked about because it's too horrific an outcome to even Mm. think about so let's not talk about it because there's nothing we can do anyway but we know that a high percentage of um, stillbirths are preventable despite that in Mm. 30 years the the incidence of stillbirth has not changed so we know that there is a percentage of stillbirths that can be prevented, yet we have not changed the incidence of stillbirth um, significantly. And that's to do with systems. It's to do with um, conversations. It's to do with society's inability or uh, to talk about death. And we don't like to talk about those bad outcomes, but we need to do better because there are things mm-hmm. that we, we can do. Um, an example that I like to give is, every every parent is given a risk profile for Down syndrome, right? You yep. have your first trimester scan, you can choose to have a blood test have a blood test and you can choose to have ultrasounds and you can be given a profile and be given an individual risk
1: mm-hmm. as to
2: what your risk is for having a stillborn born child. And if you are considered if your risk is greater than um, one in three hundred,
1: mm.
2: then you're considered high risk for Down syndrome. If you're considered high risk, you are offered extra testing potentially. Mm. So, um, might be extra ultrasounds to look for, you know, the the nasal bone and the heart defects, um, just to to you know let you know whether the you may have Down syndrome or you can have you know an amniocentesis or a, a, an invasive testing to check mm. for a condition which is not necessarily life threatening. Okay, why are we giving that same respect to stillbirths? There is a risk. At the moment, there's still research going into coming up with tools to to calculate what each individual person's risk is, and this is something that's happening at the the uh, Centre for Research Excellence in Stillbirth in Brisbane, the CRE, and they're working on developing a tool that clinicians can then um, use with their um, patients to give them an individual risk profile. In the interim, until we've got that tool, why aren't we having conversations in prenatal clinics Hmm. um, around the risks? You know, we're told don't eat soft cheese because your baby might die of listeria. I mean, all of our soft cheeses in Australia are, are pasteurized, right? So so we're told, oh, don't do high-impact exercise. What about, and I know you feel passionately about this, hmm. Laurie, what about those women who have done high-impact exercise for their entire life up until the point of having birth? It's um, the point of um, falling pregnant. Hmm. Why are we telling them, um, oh, you can't exercise, uh, when we know that, it, you know, it, it's safe? So it can be safe. I digress but the point Mm. with stillbirth is why aren't we having discussions in that prenatal clinic saying look before you fall pregnant you should take your pregnancy vitamins and all these things that we do say and because you do smoke or because you're an older mom or because of x y and z um, these are your risks a really small risk is something like stillbirth and we can talk about that as you go through your pregnancy if you fall pregnant um, and we can work on how to reduce those risks. But we're not. Not once mm. in any of my pregnancies, obviously the second two was a bit different, but with mm. the first two, was it ever, ever even slightly hinted on as, as it being a possibility for me? Mm. So for me, my only risk was my age. Mm. yeah. And so we can't change my age. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that, that we couldn't have changed my birth story. My birth story was I gave birth at 40 weeks plus six days. Mm. Okay. Timing of birth should have been discussed with me for informed consent. I'm I'm not talking about clinicians saying you must deliver at 38 weeks because it's not safe for you to go longer. Okay. But if I'm sort of told, oh, it's probably better if we induce you at 38 weeks because you're a bit older, full stop. If I'm a staunch advocate for for allowing the baby to instigate the birth, why would I choose that option? Right. Mm. Um, if I'm told from the day I conceive or or pre that mm-hmm. that you're an older woman, um, we'll have some discussions throughout your pregnancy about this, but please keep in mind it does make you a higher risk for mm. what. Outcomes such as stillbirth. Um, so we might want to talk about timing of the birth of your baby as you as you move in your pre- through to your pregnancy. Mm. If I'd have been, if that had been discussed with me, maybe my husband and I would have gone, oh, okay. Well, maybe we should, maybe we should induce earlier mm. than, yep. than yep. waiting till forty-one
1: weeks when it's too late. And um, there's no tests that you can physically see any defects or abnormalities or telltale signs that tell you that was about to happen that a placental abruption or okay, not, i think yeah. not
2: reliably no because mm. uh, well i was at the obstetrician the day before mm. Sophie she died and yeah. she did an ultrasound everything looked fine so yeah. i didn't mention this in my birth story but do you remember i said that um sharp back pain or bleeding yeah, is, is yeah. a sign. And I didn't have that. So I didn't bleed. I had so Sophie died because I had um uh what they called a concealed placental abruption. So I had a placenta abruption, but the placenta abrupted sort of sort of around here, but the edges of the placenta were intact. So mm-hmm. no blood, it didn't come away from the wall and the for the blood to escape. Yep. Um, and the sharp pain they're talking about is clearly having a placental abruption can give mm. you that sharp pain, which is dangerous. So I didn't have that, um, but but I had ha- I did have a placental abruption. Um, the fact is I was thirty seven or thirty eight years old, and mm. my placenta, the functioning of my placenta was doing fine. Sophie was um, three points nine kilograms so she she wasn't um um her growth was very normal she was on the you know she the placenta was functioning fine but it just abrupted and for her to have been born earlier than that will have not been in any way shape or form detrimental to her growth to her development Mm. um and the fact that i was high risk because of my age was never discussed with me and i never had informed consent to be able to make a decision around the timing of birth so yeah. um so that that's why I think it's important that we can empower women to be Have able to knowledge make themselves. Yeah. Yeah. yeah
1: yeah well I didn't tell you that Joe actually um is in part running um born ready which are workshops to inform and educate women during their pregnancy mainly for physical aspects of labor is that right Joe? Uh, look, it's more about lots of information, and
0: um, in pregnancy, and also then just gearing everyone up for birth, and also just understanding all of your options in terms of what. When when someone says, "Do you want to be induced?" What actually does that even mean? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what does it mean? What am I consenting to to have an epidural? Like, what are all of the? <laughs> just giving women exactly what you say, arming women listen. with more more knowledge, so that they understand what they're saying yes or no to
1: in more detail. So do you talk about stillbirth?
0: No, but it is on our list. So because um, more from the perspective of birthing the baby after a stillbirth, Mm. so having a specific uh, sort of module, if you like, for women who've already been, particularly the women who've birthed their stillborn babies as their first birth, and preparing them for another birth with what I'm, you know, with all of that trauma. Yeah. you know
1: yeah. so
0: um we're working on that with this antenatal mm. um and postpartum counsellor just to get you know just try and cover th- and and maybe i can talk to you about it too heidi just just to nail that piece around you know how can we prepare physically that's easy we can prepare you physically mm. but how do we prepare you mentally for your subsequent birth yeah after birthing a stillborn baby mm.
2: yeah mm. i mean and that could be a whole another podcast, really, but um, um, you know the there's there's so many things that were done really well for for us. So we had um, access, to just the knowledge that we had had access to the um, uh, pregnancy after loss um, unit at the MARTA, whereby at any stage, if we wanted to go in and just check that the baby, you know, put the monitor on the baby to make sure that everything was fine, we could just go in and do it. And so a, a couple of times I rang my obstetrician at random times and was concerned because I hadn't felt the baby move. And, um, and she's like, just come in, just come in. And and so there was this unit there that I had that access to. So that was the biggest thing for me was not the fear of actually birthing another child. Um, It was the, the fear of of the child dying before i had a chance to to birth it that was the hard thing so i had that that sort of um ongoing support um i had more appointments with the obstetrician that than i would have um previously and we did so my counselor then we did a um Uh, I I birthed in the same hospital for the subsequent births, but we had identified the room that I was in when I was told that Sophie had died and it was marked on my chart that I was not to ever be in that room. Um, We we identified which room I birthed. We walked through the birthing suite when I was pregnant and identified which birthing suites I had been in with Sophie and which one, so therefore I wasn't put in that one again. We had a planned induction for Max he came at 30 weeks 38 weeks on his own accord so we didn't need to be induced but but um but Zara my fourth was um was induced at 39 weeks and the induction was really gentle and done so well in the hospital so that it was i think i went in at 6am for the pessary and then she wasn't born until 21 hours later um i think um so well after midnight um, but she I was just on a really slow, slow drip. So like they were just very aware that I was scared about that sudden um, commencement of contractions. And so um, yeah, I mean it was it was done, it was done really, really well. Um, and we were really well supported uh, throughout that process, yeah. Mm-hmm. but but I think, Joe, how powerful for you, and I would strongly encourage you to add into your, Um, unit Um, I know you've talked about you know birthing after stillbirth but how empowering would it be for you to add in a unit of prevention of stillbirth timing of birth for prevention of stillbirth and just informing the women
1: that um, you know having that conversation because is that our place as physios can we take up that space as well in addition if If you're a physio you know you know yeah, I think if you are if you're um delivering
2: evidence based information and, mm. and you're not you're not doing it from a place of scaremongering, which obviously you're not going to be, um absolutely. Like at a conference I went to with, with some obstetricians recently where I spoke, the the thing that the feedback that they had is they didn't want to bring these things up to upset the mother. So it, clearly it is seems to be upsetting to mention um an outcome which may end in the death of your baby and, and nobody wants to upset a mother. But I can tell you what is far more upsetting than broaching the subject of something which may or may not happen. Um, what's far more upsetting is telling somebody your baby has died. Like that that is far more upsetting. So we don't give women credit for how much knowledge we crave. We want to know everything um, about what could go, what could go wrong, how can I do things better? Um, how can I be prepared? And you know, we're we're not talking about that being the sole focus of every appointment, but just introducing this as a, a possibility into the conversation so that if the woman is not wanting to talk about it, that's their choice. But as a clinician, I feel we've got an we've got an obligation to be able to say, hey, look, Heidi, you're 38 years old and you're healthy and you don't smoke and you're not overweight and you um you've done all the right things in pregnancy. But With your age, it does put you at higher risk of of a number of things. Um, One of those is stillbirth. Um, It's important that you're aware of that. If you'd like to know more information, let me know because there are some things that we can do to help reduce those risks. I I don't know about anyone else, but I would have been, okay, Mm. just just tell me. Um, And as a physio, you
1: can say, you know, I suggest you talk to your obstetrician about If you've got any concerns or worries. Yeah, yeah. You know how we, there's that discussion about sleeping on your back in the third trimester. Does that have to do with stillbirth? Yep, 100%. Okay. Yep. So is that one of the risk factors then is sleeping yes. on your back during the, the side. third?
2: Yep. Yes. So side sleeping after, is recommended after 28 weeks to reduce mm. the risk of stillbirth.
1: Yep. Okay, that's what I thought. That's why I'm yep. like, because, and it is, sorry, you said after 28, 28 weeks. weeks. Yep. Yes. Yep. Okay. So is that about the only common education or information that people get
2: yeah and i don't even know whether people um, know that's why you're told to do that so i slept on my side but i was told in my mind i thought it was because the baby would press on my um whatever vein or whatever i can't even remember what veins are and arteries are down there but the pressure on that artery would mean that i have reduced blood flow to my legs and that's bad for me but my reasons were right. It was because mm. the way the baby puts pressure on your major blood vessels in your pelvic mm. region, which supply the placenta, which is what's keeping mm. your baby alive. So um, absolutely sleeping on your side is um absolutely one of the um, things to reduce the risk of stillbirth. Yeah. There's a I'm gonna send you through a link. There's a few links, but one is for I've mentioned the CRE mm. um. For stillbirth in Brisbane, so they've got an amazing website and there's some great resources on there. Um, there is, um, they launched a couple of years ago the Safer Baby Bundle, which is um, uh, it was launched for clinicians, um, specifically I think mostly targeted towards public health system midwives. Um, I guess obstetricians as well but there's lots of information on there um you'll Ned and I are in a couple of the educational videos there um which if you watch the links but there's some great links on how to talk to patients and um how to broach these sort of subjects and it's designed for um healthcare professionals not not just um not just doctors um, or healthcare professionals so I'll, I'll send you that link and then and the other couple of links that um I would recommend um, for people who uh, are thinking of having a baby and want to know the risks, there's a great organisation called Still Aware um, that was founded by um, Claire who lost her baby, Alfie, Um, and so it's a lot about education um, around stillbirth. And the other great organisation that I um, love is one that i never got to use because they weren't around when sophie was born but they're called precious wings um and they do memory boxes so uh we did not we're not um gifted with one of these at the hospital but they now are providing um memory boxes i think it's just for queensland at the moment but they're trying to expand and in those memory boxes you can see on their website there's uh, lots of things that, that are given to people who have, have lost a child in the hospital to help them preserve the memory of their, their child. So um, it's a great organisation. Um, it's all run on volunteers um, and donations from people. So um, I'll, I'll send you those links.
1: That was actually what I was going to ask you was resources. So I'll put all the links um, in the show notes. Is there anything else that you wanted to add?
2: Oh, Laurie, this time is so much.
1: You it's know, like- we're going to do another podcast on yeah. all yeah. of the other stuff. Um, yeah. But thank you so much for sharing your story and for, again, talking about Sophie and advocating for everyone else that's out there. It's my pleasure, Laurie. It's my pleasure.